0: We are in uh, the series called Quartet. In the New Testament, it opens with four tellings of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because the Gospels, they're the Gospel. They're the story of Jesus. And so these these four evangelists, that's what they are sometimes called evangelists, they they give us this story and they tell us the same essential story, the life, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, but they do so in their own unique voice. And they put their own particular theological emphasis in the letters that they want us to, to read. And so we have four stories, not one, but four. If you remember last week, there was an individual in second century. He was a theologian. His name was Tatian, a Syrian theologian. And he wanted to harmonize all the gospels. He was a little embarrassed by the discrepancies that are within some of the gospels. And so he wanted to harmonize them. And then the church leader, Arrhenius said, no, 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 we're not, we're not gonna do that because four stories of Jesus is better than one story of Jesus. So just like we have North, South, East, and West, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're looking at the mountain range, if you look at a mountain range from north, south, east, and west, you're going to see different aspects of that same range. It's the same with Jesus. We have, you can look at Jesus from the viewpoints of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're going to see different aspects of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they were not dictated to. I think you can say amen to that. They were inspired, but they weren't dictated to. I often wondered, I don't know if you ever wondered, but I had that question, what does inspiration look like? Is it the the Holy Spirit, like kind of sitting on your shoulder, whispering to you the letters that you're to write, and you're dictating those letters? I don't think that's inspiration. The Holy Spirit was working with them, allowing them to use their own personality, their own voice, but they weren't being dictated to. Inspiration is not dictation. That's why you can hear their own unique voices. You hear the urgent voice of Mark. That was last week, right? Immediately, immediately, suddenly, suddenly, that was Mark. You hear the distinct Jewish voice of Matthew. You hear the Gentile voice of Luke and you hear the very spiritual voice of, of John. You hear them talking about Jesus in an inspired way and they're using their own voice. This sheds some light on inspiration because in inspiration, it's not robotic. There, there's movement. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a musical. It's like a quartet. There's uniqueness to it. And so if they don't agree on every detail and they don't, that doesn't matter. That actually is secondary because the theology of Jesus is more important to these gospel writers than historical accuracy. They aren't just trying to give you a biography. That's what they are doing. They are giving us a biography, but they're not just trying to give us a biography. They're trying to show you God revealed in Christ. And so today is the gospel letter of Matthew. Matthew isn't the first gospel written. That was Mark. We talked about Mark last week, but Matthew is where we are Today And in Matthew, we make this giant leap from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And, and it is a giant leap. Not, not even in just time, it's 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, but in emphasis, something shifts. There's a reason why we use language like Old and New Testament. You'll see why in a minute. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Matthew one, verse one. Matthew one verse one. This is where we're going to start. This is, this is what Matthew says. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. So Matthew opens up by making this announcement. He says, this is a record of the ancestors. That word record that I'm reading out of the New Living Translation and other uh, translations, it says, this is the genealogy of the ancestors of of Jesus the Messiah. So the the word for that, that word, um, the original word Greek for genealogy or ancestors here is, is Genesis. So it actually, it reads like this. This is a record of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And what we can say is that Matthew is the genesis of the New Testament. Like Just like we have a genesis in the Old Testament, Matthew is the genesis of the New Testament. But stay with me for a moment here. In the Christian reading of this, Matthew is the genesis of the whole Bible. Stay with me because only as we look back in the Old Testament through the light of Christ, can we read the Old Testament in the proper Christian light. You you can read the Old Testament, but you're not going to be able to understand it without first understanding Jesus. When you you understand Jesus, you're gonna be able to go back to the Old Testament and say, oh, I, I think I get it. I think I understand What's going on here, now I see. And so the record of the Genesis of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, this is how Matthew begins this gospel. And what follows is a genealogy of Jesus that goes back to David and even further back from David to the patriarch, Abraham. The New Testament opens not with miracles, not with the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, but it opens with a timeline. A genealogy, why a genealogy? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. A genealogy is not a great way to draw people into the story. I don't know about you, but when I open Matthew 1, I'm not enjoying reading a whole chapter of names that I cannot properly pronounce. It doesn't do a good job of drawing me into the life of Jesus. But what it does do really well is it creates context, gives context to the story. What Matthew is doing is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made in the Old Testament. All those promises are coming true in Jesus and he points to Abraham. And so it makes sense that we go to Abraham to remind ourselves of the promises that God has made. And if you remember the promise that God made to Abraham is that his seed would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that comes true through Jesus. The promise that God made to David that Matthew mentions is that one of his sons would sit on an eternal throne. That comes true with Jesus. So Jesus is the seed of Abraham that is greater than Isaac that is going to bless all the nations. Jesus is the son of David that is greater than Solomon who sits on an eternal throne. Last week when we were in um, the Gospel of Mark, what was, what was the, the word, the big theme that came from Mark? Immediately, Right? It was immediately, immediately, immediately. There's such a, a pace to the, to the gospel of, of Mark. Everything was so fast paced. So if immediately is the reoccurring word in the gospel of Mark, fulfilled as the reoccurring word in Matthew's gospel, specifically that the scriptures will be fulfilled. More than any other gospel writer, Matthew is going to draw our attention and point us to the Old Testament. And in doing so, he's going to be telling us a message and saying that only the, only, the Old Testament can only be understood through the light and the life of Christ. There's a, a famous uh, philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, you familiar with Soren Kierkegaard? He has this uh, statement that I think a lot of you will will remember or at least uh, have heard before. He says this, he says, we understand life backwards, but we can only live it forwards. We understand life backwards, but we can only live it forwards. How many of you have heard that statement? Yeah, yeah. How many of you have figured that out by now? Right? Right. There's a good chance that if you figure this out, you're probably more in your second stage of life than in the first stage of life, because life only makes sense as you look back and you say, oh, I get it. Now that I have maturity, now that I have experience, now, now that I have a little bit more wisdom and a little bit more information, I understand why my parents made the decisions that they did. I understand why my boss made that decision because now I'm, I'm a boss, <laughs> right? It, only after uh, time, experience and wisdom Do you look back at your life with a greater sense of clarity? And that's very much the the way the Old Testament and the New Testament are related. You're going to go through the Old Testament. If you start in the Old Testament, you're going to go through it. And a lot of questions are going to be popping up. And you're going to be like, I'm not really sure I understand. And and, and what's going on here? But you can only understand that as you look back after you understand Christ. That's the Kierkegaard reason. I can do one one better. Um, The movie. The Sixth Sense, M. Night Shyamalan, 1999. How many of you have seen that movie? Okay. How many of you have not seen that movie? I am really disappointed. That, that is one of the all-time great movies. And, and I, you have had 20 years to watch this movie. Okay. I am going to spoil the movie for you. Spoiler alert. This is what happens. This is the Icy Dead People movie. And it's kind of strange and it's kind of creepy and you're you're watching this movie and you're kind of wondering what is going on and then at the very end you get it and you're like, "Oh, he was dead the whole time. I get it. That totally makes sense." That's the same thing with the Old Testament. It doesn't make sense until you get to Jesus and then you're like, "That was what that was all about. Let me, let me give you a couple examples of, of how this plays out in, in the gospel here. So uh, we'll stay in the first chapter, Matthew 1. We're gonna go down to verse 22 here. And so let me just read this to you. So this is Matthew 1, 22. So all of this occurred to fulfill. So there's that word, and you're gonna come across that word quite a bit of time here. So all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God is with us. And it's really interesting because what Matthew is talking about here is the virgin birth of Christ. And he's referring to the prophet Isaiah that lived 600 years earlier. And Isaiah had a prophecy and he wrote that down. You can find that writing and that prophecy in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. I think I have it on the screen here, Isaiah 7, 14. Yeah, right up right up there. Okay, right there. All right then. Okay, so that's, that's the, the verse there. So this is what Isaiah pens 600 years prior to uh, Christ. He says, all right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin, so pause right there. That word virgin in Hebrew means young woman. That's what that means. So he says, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he'll be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. So let me just give a little bit of context here. Isaiah is writing in the seventh century BC and he puts down this prophecy where he says the young one, this wife of what we think is King Ahaz, that, that, that she's going to have this child. And, 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 she, and he says, um, I want you to call King Ahaz, I want you to call this child uh, Emmanuel. Uh, God is with us because God is with us. And he's going to show you how he is with you. And, and by the time this child is old enough to choose between right and wrong or eat yogurt and honey, those two enemies that are at your doorsteps that you're afraid of, they will no longer be there. So you won't have to worry about them. That's what this verse says. So until you get to Jesus and, and, then, and then you go, wait, wait a minute. I actually, I think there's more going on in this verse than what we originally thought. You, you can never read this passage in the seventh century and say, oh, I, I, see that, that's, I see what they're talking about here. That's the Messiah. That's the one that's gonna free this world from the tyranny of sin. And, and he's gonna be born from a virgin. No one would be able to predict that during that time. But when it occurs, you look back at it and you say, oh, I I get it, I see what is really going on. It's the I see dead people moment. You couldn't have predicted by reading that passage that the Messiah was gonna come from a virgin birth, which makes the point that you can only read the Old Testament in the proper Christian light as you look back on it through the light of Christ. Here's another example, Matthew 2. Uh, 17 and 18 here. Matthew 2, 17 and 18. So Herod's brutal action fulfilled, again, that word, but God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, to be comforted for they are, are dead. This is at the end of Matthew's description of when uh, King Herod sent his death squads into the town of Bethlehem to kill every baby boy that was under the age of, of two. And, and, and he says, he kind of wraps up that, that sequence by saying this fulfills what Jeremiah said, the prophet Jeremiah said, and you can read about that prophecy in chapter 31 on the book of Jeremiah. But let me give you a little bit of context of what Jeremiah was talking about when he first penned that prophecy down. In the time, and you're going way back now, in the time of the patriarchs with um, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, uh, Jacob had a, a, a wife. His wife was, named, he had a couple wives, but uh, his favorite was Rachel. And Rachel gave birth to Joseph and to Benjamin. And so when Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, she died giving birth to to him and was buried near Bethlehem where there's still a tombstone that, is, that recognizes that spot. Over the course of time, Rachel kind of became a little bit of a patroness to Hebrew children. And so in this act of prophetic imagination, we're with uh, Jeremiah in the sixth century BC. And he's knowing, he knows that, that Israel is about to get invaded by the kingdom of, of Babylon. And history knows that situation as uh, the, the king of that country as King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem and he's gonna destroy it. And when he destroys Jerusalem, children are gonna die. Families are gonna die. And and Jeremiah on seeing this oncoming destruction, he refers back to Rachel and he says, oh, even Rachel is weeping at what's going to happen to your children. And and, and she's gonna refuse to be comforted because they're all dead. But now 600 years later, Matthew sees something else in that passage. So you couldn't have predicted in the time of the reading and the writing of, of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, that King Herod was going to come and try to kill the Messiah, Jesus. But looking back, we see it. I have another one here. I'm not gonna do this one, but it's in, it's in Matthew 4, 12 and 16. But I'm gonna to go to the very last one. Uh, the very last, the scripture is fulfilled in the book of Matthew. And that is in uh, Matthew 27, uh, verse 10, uh, 9 and 10. Matthew 27, verse 9 and 10. And I'm going to flip right over there. And so this is what Matthew says. This is the very last, so that scripture may be fulfilled. And so this is, uh, this is what he says, that the field is still called the field of blood. This fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price at which was valued by the people of Israel and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed. So, so Matthew quotes Jeremiah around, and remember this story, what happens with Judas, right? So Judas betrays Jesus and he is paid 30 pieces of silver and he takes those per- 30 pieces of silver, and he goes and he buys, buys a field. And so Matthew quotes Jeremiah in, in this prophetic uh, fulfillment. But the funny thing about this is that it's not Jeremiah that made that prophecy. It, it was uh, Zechariah. It's uh, Zechariah eleven thirteen. And And so, so Matthew makes a mistake <laughs> in the scriptures. He makes a mistake. Does that bother you? It doesn't bother me, not a bit, because we're talking about inspiration, not dictation, right? Matthew knows his scriptures. He's no dummy. And, and, and I can just imagine he's thinking of this verse, the one of the prophets uh, wrote that talked about 30 pieces of silver that involves a potter's field. And, and it really fits in with the Judas story. And so he's like, I'm pretty sure it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he did most of these, Jeremiah and Isaiah. So I'm pretty sure it's, it's Jeremiah. And so he, he, he references Jeremiah as the one who originally penned that prophecy. So he's like, let's write that down. And so you go to Jeremiah and you scour all through Jeremiah to find Matthew's source. And, and it's not there because it's not in there. It's in the book of Zechariah. I guess that makes my point. My, my point is this, what's, what's more important? Are, are you being formed into the likeness of Christ by Christ? Or is it more important to have the right mailing address? See, I'm, I'm not worried that he got it wrong. It doesn't bother me, not in the least. If it bothers you, that's totally fine. You can take it up with Matthew and the Holy Spirit when you get to heaven. So, so Matthew, he, he uses the word Genesis in the very first verse of the gospel to indicate that the, that the whole Bible, the, the whole Bible needs to be read in the light of Christ. And so they have their Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they know the scriptures in this Old Testament and they know this Old Testament. And we have the same scriptures that that they have. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then then even Peter and Paul and all the writers of the New Testament, they say, hey, you have the old scriptures, you know those scriptures, but now you need to reread those scriptures in the light of Christ. And now, because now we have a light that properly illumines what was meant to be told. It would, it would go back to the Sixth Sense movie. It would be like we were right in the middle of the Sixth Sense and you've never seen it before. And, and I said, Grant, what's going on? And I paused the movie and I said, give me a synopsis. And you would give me a little bit of a narrative. You would say, this is kind of what's happening and, and they're trying to solve this mystery and this problem. It's a little vague, it's a little fuzzy, but I think we need to watch it to the very end to be able to see. And I would say, yeah, you're right. You need to watch it to, to the very end. And so we get to the very end of the movie and then, I, then I, I pause the movie and I say, okay, Grant, what happened? What is the movie? And you say, oh, how did I not get it? Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. The guy was wearing the same clothes throughout the whole movie. How did I not catch that? That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are saying. They're saying, we have the Bible, but, but now we have to reread it because Jesus is with us and Jesus has always been with us. And Jesus was the alpha and, and, and he's the omega. And, and all things are gonna to come to light because of who Jesus is. You, you can say it this way. All scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. So if a biblical text does not look Christ-like, we haven't yet read it right. You can hold on to that one. I wish I could take credit for that. That's not my quote, but it's a good one. And it's one that I hold on to. All scripture is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if a biblical text doesn't look Christ-like, we haven't yet read it right. There's one more um, theme that is going on in this gospel. Actually, Melody mentioned it right at the front end of the service, it's the theme of discipleship. Uh, Matthew, more than any other writer, any other gospel writer, puts an emphasis on discipleship uh, more than all of them. Matthew is the guy that is saying, hey, it's not enough to just believe in Jesus. You, you have to obey Him. You, you have to live it out. You have, to, you, have to, you have to walk out the lifestyle, the way of, of Jesus. You have to live that out. This is why the the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount that we have spent so much time in this this past year. It's three chapters of nothing but red letters of Jesus saying, and and live this way. And and this is what it looks like when you follow me. And and this is what what it looks like. And Luke, when, when Luke talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he takes those whole three chapters and he condenses it into half a chapter. And it's not a sermon on the mountain, it's actually a sermon on the plain with, with Luke. He's wanting to emphasize something different there. Mark, Mark doesn't even talk about this. John, not a bit. But Matthew, it is absolutely, absolutely prominent. For, for, for Matthew, actually mountains are an important theme in Matthew. It's, it's, uh, it's where uh, announcements are, are made. If there is a big um, a proclamation, Matthew says that, that Jesus goes on a mountain. You know, actually it's that, that idea that really formed um, the, the naming of our church summit here. Is that, with, that when we come to gather together in, in worship, that we come with a the, with the heart that is ready to hear that God wants to speak to you, that he wants to say something to you, that it's important, that there is a proclamation that God wants you to receive that is, is life-changing and that can happen in the, in the word, in the sermon, in, in worship, that can happen in service, that can happen in, in our children's gathering when we're finally able to meet in that way, but that when we get together, that we have the expectancy that, that God speaks to us and, it, and it's a voice that changes lives. And so when, when Matthew says that Jesus went up the mountain and, and he's gonna make a proclamation, he's gonna make a declaration um, there, there is something that is happening there that is kind of behind the scenes because who else went up the mountain in the Old Testament? Moses, yeah. Moses. And and Matthew is drawing our connection to Moses saying, Jesus is the new Moses and and he's going up the mountain to give us a new Torah and, and this new law that Jesus is giving for all of us to receive and to hear and to live out. And he starts off this message by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who hunger or blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And that's how Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount. And he just goes on and on and on about what it means to be a follower in the way of Jesus. And this is so important to Matthew that we know this and we get this. And Mark doesn't even mention it. And John is like, I've got something else I want to tell you. And Luke is like, just a little bit. But for Matthew, it's all about discipleship. It's all about following Jesus. It's living the Jesus way. It's following Jesus. It's being obedient to Jesus. That is such a big deal for Matthew. And then we get to this controversial verse that we talked about a little while ago in verse 17, where he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to, again, what? Fulfill it. And Jesus doesn't replace the Old Testament. He doesn't replace the prophets. He fulfills it. He's the target that they were aiming for the whole time, but just couldn't quite see it. Do you know what the law of the prophets were supposed to do? The, the laws of the prophets were supposed to create a people that put God first and loved others as themselves. Fidelity and justice is how you can uh, word that. And and the threats to fidelity and justice is always infidelity and injustice. And all through the Old Testament, we see the old prophets and we see the kings and we see these people trying to live up to that and bring their people across the finish line towards fidelity and justice. But along comes Jesus and he takes the calling of Israel on his own shoulders and he carries it not just to the finish line, but across the finish line. And he establishes a way of living that embodies fidelity of worship and just treatment of others, and he calls it the kingdom of God. And the job of the church is to embody the kingdom of God. And you go right to the very end of Matthew here. And if you brought an actual Bible, if you can turn to Matthew 28, I just want you to know if you brought an actual Bible that there is a special crown in heaven that is for you. (laughs) <laughs> so we'll start in verse 16. And uh, it says this, then the 11 disciples, okay, so why are, are there 11 and not 12? Judas, Judas died, right? He's, he's not there anymore. So 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. You get that? Some of them doubted. And these are the core. This is not the periphery. This is not those on the edge. These are the core of Jesus' disciples, the, the ones that he had spent day in, day out for the last three years investing in, living this way, modeling a way of life, talking to them, conversing with them. And some of them still doubted. After they had lived with him, after they had seen him died, after they had seen him rose from the dead, some of them Still doubted. That, that actually, that brings me some comfort. It really does. I don't know if there's ever a time when doubt isn't present. I don't know. If you've ever experienced a time when doubt isn't present and you're like, just come and pastor me. Tell, tell, tell me how to live that way. I, actually, I don't even think it's, it's really possible. But I don't know what they were doubting in this last moment, in this time of worship, I don't know what they were doubting if if Jesus is who he said he was. Is this really Jesus? Is this some like strange figment of my um, imagination? Is he really God in flesh? I don't know what it was, but this is what it tells us. That doubt doesn't disqualify discipleship. Doubt doesn't disqualify discipleship. You can be a doubting disciple. You can, just be, make sure you're a disciple, right? Make sure you're a disciple because if you just hold on to the doubting word, then you'll just turn into a cynic. Doubt doesn't disqualify discipleship. And so Jesus carrying on in verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority on heaven and on earth. We didn't get to this, but this is actually a throwback, a reference to Matthew 4 when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And and remember what Satan says to Jesus, right? He says, all authority has been given to me and I'm going to give it to you if you just bow down and you worship me. I will give you this authority if you just kind of tip your hat my way. If you compromise on, on your principles, all that I have, I'm going to give to you. And then what does Jesus say to Satan? He says, get out of here. Get, get, get out of here. Be gone with you, Satan, because you shall worship the Lord your God only and only him shall you serve. And Jesus goes all the way through his ministry and, and his coronation on the cross into the depths of death and was raised on the third day. And now all authority has been given to Jesus. And so how much authority does Satan have? If all authority has been given to Jesus, how much authority does Satan have? None, none, none. None, because it's been given to Jesus. Now, Satan's is a pseudo authority with very real implications, but it's a false one. And we have to be reminded that all authority has been given to Jesus. And so what does Jesus do with this authority? Then he says this, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching these new disciples to obey. So there it is. That's Matthew. Teach and obey. Teach and obey. Understand it, know it, learn it, be educated by it, but don't just keep it in head knowledge. It's got to play out in your life. You've got to live this out. Teach and obey. Teach and obey all the commands I have given to you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the ends of the age that's how matthew ends his gospel and after reading this gospel the only rep- appropriate response is to be baptized to become a disciple of jesus and to teach others to become a disciple of jesus amen stand with me and i would like to close off in communion with we- do have a liturgy that is available to us, and so we're gonna we're gonna read this liturgy together. And if you are joining us online, I would invite you to read it out where you are. I know that might be a little awkward, but but read it out and let the words that we are reading let them just rest in your your soul. Think about them, ruminate on on them, um, meditate on these words, and then we're gonna take the elements that are given to us and we're gonna participate together in receiving those elements. But this is our liturgy. Uh, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. This is the table, not of the church, but of Jesus Christ. It is made ready for those who love God and who want to love God more. So come you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time or ever before you who have tried to follow and all of us who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come not because the church invites you. It is Christ who invites you to be known and fed here. So this is Christ's body that is broken for you. And Christ came to a world that was broken. And he came and his body was broken in a way to... Come alongside the suffering with this world that you and I all endure. Let, let's participate in the co-suffering of Christ together. In communion, uh, Jesus not only stands with us in our world in brokenness, but he gives us an alternative and he points us to a new hope and to a, a new cup and a new covenant. And that's, Christ's blood that was shed for you. So let's uh, participate and drink this together. Father, thank you for your life. Thank you for the hope that you give to us. Thank you that you model a way for us to live and to live in a way that, um, that, that breathes hope. And I pray that we would We would receive that as well, the hope that you give that only comes from you. And thank you that we can put our trust in you, that you are the embodiment, that you fulfill all scriptures, that everything in scripture, it points to you and it becomes a yes and an amen in you. And so I pray that our feet would be planted on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ, our firm foundation. In your name we pray all God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and for online. Thank you for participating with us as well. I just hope and pray that you walk in God's blessing this week. Amen. You are dismissed.